The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a more or less family-friendly celebration of all that is geeky. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and along with my daughter, we are two generations of geek. This is episode 46, Trechnology, with astrophysicist Ethan Siegel, author of the book, you guessed it, Trechnology, which compares the gadgets of Star Trek with the technology we have right now or may be able to achieve in the future. But first, a program note. Ella was busy at college this week and couldn't make it for the interview, but I did work in a cameo by her at the end of the episode. She'll return to the show next time. Remember, you can find us online at generationsgeek.com, which includes handy links to all of our episodes. Plus, check out the Generations Geek Instagram, featuring Ella's geeky adventures. Now, on with the show. Ethan Siegel, welcome to Generations Geek. Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm always excited to get to talk Star Trek. <laughs> well, I'm happy to have you here. We'll certainly be talking about your book, Treknology. But I have a few other things I want to ask you about first. Of course. This is the uh, chicken and egg question. Were you a Star Trek geek that got into science or were you a science geek that got into Star Trek? This is one of the most surprising questions whenever I answer it for someone. Because they <laughs> always they always think that, oh, like a scientist who loves Star Trek, it must be Star Trek that got him into that. And... It's really funny because when I was a kid, I was always into investigating the universe, learning about it more. I remember being very excited to get a microscope uh, when I was a little kid. And I was so <laughs> excited one day when my dad cut himself shaving. I like I ran in there with like a slide and I was like, <laughs> all right, you got to put some of the blood on this. I want to see. I want to see. I want to see. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know about slide covers or how the focus yeah. worked. It was I just got blood all over everything. It was ridiculous. <laughs> um, same thing with the telescope. I grew up in New York City. So I had a telescope that I got, I think, for my birthday one year. And I'd go out on the terrace and try to look directly at the full moon because that was the mm -hmm. only thing you could see. And I had no yeah. idea what I was doing. That's a terrible plan. You should never <laughs> use an unfiltered telescope to look directly at the full moon. But this was the stuff I was curious about. I had this collection of books that I would read about you know, over and over, because this is what kids do about how much would you weigh on different planets. And, and I thought this stuff was fascinating. Oddly enough, when Star Trek The Next Generation came out, I was uh, I was a preteen mm -hmm. and I never watched it. I didn't even know <laughs> anything about it because my mom was a Star Trek fan. And when The Next Generation came out, she told me in no uncertain terms there's only one captain, his name is Kirk, and there's <laughs> never going to be another Star Trek series. This is this is all fake. Uh, but then oh, later, that's on, later on, uh, when I was a teenager, I did get into Star Trek The Next Generation. It was still running at the time. And, uh, and I got to watch the earlier episodes, which is maybe fortunate for me because looking back on it now, when it's much farther in the past, uh, season mm -hmm. three for me is when the series really got like just continuously good firing on yeah. all cylinders, hitting yep. its marks. I was like this, this is an outstanding television series. And for Star Trek, for me, the idea, the thing that really made me latch onto it was this idea that when we look at the future, when we imagine it, um, it can be something where all of the problems facing society today are wiped out by advances in science and technology used for the benefit of all of humanity. Uh, Star Trek The Next Generation is still my favorite of the series. It's the most idealistic, and it has, out of all the captains, my favorite captain, who really is the moral compass for, I think, the entire franchise. Um, and I, I really appreciate that, how Star Trek used the 
future as a scene to tell life lessons and tales of right and wrong and what to do and how to think in difficult situations. The science and the technology is always there, but it's rarely the focus. The focus is on the issues that make us human. And it's that combination of things, of science and technology with the ethical issues, with the right and wrong, was what made me fall in love with it. And Jean-Luc Picard was a scientist as well. Of course he was. Of course he was. So the science definitely came first for you. Mm -hmm. When did you know that you were going to pursue science as a career? You know, I don't think I don't think that came until I was already out of college. Um, when I was younger, I had the same problem. I, I won't even call it a problem because I think it's only uh, it's only the expectations we have that people should know their career path right away that makes <laughs> yeah. it a problem. When I was when I was in high school, I was interested in a whole bunch of things. When I was in college, I found that I got interested in even more things. I I was a triple major by the time I graduated in <laughs> in not just like three different sciences, but in pretty disparate things. I, I studied classics, you know, ancient Greece and ancient Rome mm -hmm. and the languages. And I studied abroad in Italy for a semester. Um, I majored, I, I was at Northwestern and they have a program there that I think is fantastic called the Integrated Science Program. And they, it's its own major where you take 23 different classes across math and physics and biology and neurobiology and biochemistry and geophysics and nuclear physics and astronomy wow. and computer science. And you learn mm -hmm. this huge range of things. Um, and then you do research as well. And this all comes together as some unified major where it's, uh, where it's designed to give you a broad appreciation for how interdisciplinary sciences work. Um, and that was something that was fantastic. But after that, uh, I was a teacher for a while. And it was only while I was teaching uh, where I was enjoying it, but I wasn't enjoying it as much as I felt I needed to, that it made me have that crisis um, of saying, okay, here's what I'm doing now. I don't want to keep doing it. What would I rather be doing? And I said, well, if there's one thing you could learn about, what would it be? It would be the origin of the universe, where things came from, how they got to be the way they are today, and where they're headed in the future. And this, I was very happy to learn, was not a question for theologians and poets and philosophers, <laughs> but for astrophysicists, and in particular, mm -hmm. for a branch of astrophysicists known as cosmologists. And I said, well, that's what I want to do. I want to do the theory side of cosmology. And I found seven different grad schools where they were where they had programs and people that were studying it that I was interested to work with. And I got into five of them and I chose going to the University of Florida. And that, that was when oh. I knew, was doing that, working with my advisor, who was just both a wonderful human being and a wonderful and brilliant cosmologist. His name is Jim Fry. Um, mm -hmm. I just, I just, look back on that time and I think how spoiled I was to have such a good working relationship with someone who was so brilliant and curious and so invested in my education. And from there, I never looked back. And since you were down in Florida, were you able to go see like space shuttle launches and that sort of thing? Uh, that was going on at the time. Yeah, I was there from 01 to 06. And so, uh, you know, I was happy to Get in, get in my car and drive down to Cape Kennedy and see or Cape Canaveral and see whoop, yeah. see the launches when they happened. So that was oh, that was a nice I'm opportunity. Envious. That was a nice. <laughs> I've never seen a launch in person. That that would be amazing. Well, you'll never see a shuttle launch in person. And yeah. But other things are launching. Uh, in particular, you know, uh, next spring there's going to be an Ariane five rocket that launches carrying the James Webb Space Telescope. So yeah. if you can get anywhere, that's the one to watch. <laughs> I was uh, lucky enough to work on a project for the Kennedy Space Center a few years ago and got to spend a week down there. And, uh, oh, it was, it was fabulous. <laughs> Going back to that question that I asked you about whether you were interested in the science first or Star Trek first, 
I wouldn't be able to answer that question because I can't remember a time when I wasn't into both of them. Oh. For me, it's been a lifelong thing, just space and Star Trek just completely intertwined. You know, that's that's fantastic. I don't think I was exposed to Star Trek uh, young enough for that to be the case. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, um, as soon as I... As soon as I discovered Star Trek and gave it a real chance, you know, I think I think when I was younger, I saw one like season one or two episode and I was like, this isn't very good. Um, And and that was like my first exposure to it. And then when I was 13, I gave it another shot and I was like, oh, oh, I see what the fuss is about. This is a great show. I'm going to have to watch all of it now. And so many franchises later, I'm still watching every episode of Discovery as soon as I possibly can. Okay, so you started out teaching. I'm assuming you were teaching science. I was. uh, My first job was teaching uh, sixth graders. And then after that, I taught high school to ninth and 11th graders, uh, you know, physics, physical science, Mm -hmm. things like that. So then you left teaching to pursue being an actual cosmologist. Mm -hmm. What is your day? What do you do? That varies wildly between cosmologists and also on the day and the year and what I'm doing. Um, As a cosmologist, most of what you're going to do is research into your specific arena of study. Mm -hmm. So if you are studying individual galaxies, uh, you're going to be running dark matter simulations or looking at data and analyzing it to tease out this generic behavior. And then you're going to see how well the theory and the observation line up and you're going to test various models. Those are the kinds of things you're going to do. There's a lot of computer programming for me. And that's because there are four different types of astrophysicists out there. Uh, One of them is a theorist. That's what I do. Um, And that's a lot of pen and paper calculations and also a lot of programming and simulating. There are observational cosmologists. These are the people who gather the data that I pay attention to or not if I don't believe in it or don't like it. No, I'm just kidding. You have to pay attention (laughs) to all of it. Um, They're the observationalists who go and take the data, um, record what the universe is doing and share that with everyone. Um, My first scientific paper was actually an observational cosmology paper. And I think having my foot in more than one of the main areas has helped me get a better appreciation for um, for for what it goes into it, for what goes into cosmology, and for how robust, reliable, or believable what you're getting is. Uh, the third one is instrumentation. There are a lot of people. It takes so many people to build these great observatories, to build these telescopes, to build the cameras and instruments for them. That is a whole area of research all its own. I think a lot of times that does not get the recognition it's due for how magnificent it's been to advance us. Um, But if you look at the Hubble Space Telescope and the original, even the original corrected images from 93, 94 versus the images it takes today, all of those advances are due to advances in instrumentation. It's the same telescope, the same mirror, the same optics. It's just a more advanced camera, a more advanced instrument can make such better use of what Hubble is capable of. And then finally, this is the newest one, there are data analysts, there are computational astrophysicists who don't just run some simulations, but who do basically big data for cosmology. Um, where you take the synthesis of all these different data sets, you analyze them for a variety of things, and you tease massive amounts of information out of of these results. Um, So for me as a theorist, uh, it's a combination of reading papers, doing calculations, ideation, and 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 working things out to see is this a promising area of research or is this a dead end or is this a dead end for me and maybe someone else will pursue it um yeah so those are those are the primary things that one does as a theoretical cosmologist with their day i have seen some very fun clips of you online 
uh, appearing on your local news station talking about some sort of scientific issue or astronomical issue. So I'm curious when you started taking on that role as a popularizer oh. and doing those sorts of appearances. Well, I think my uh, first or second year... Uh, when I was a professor at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, um, our university, our college got a call from the local TV station and said, hey, we saw this thing about faster than light neutrinos. Um, you're, if you remember that, that uh, at CERN, they had a result from the opera oh, yeah, experiment yeah. saying like, hey, we have this distance and the neutrinos arrived like too many nanoseconds early. Um, yeah what's going on here? Um, and someone was like, oh, neutrinos are traveling faster than light. And they were like, can you have an astrophysicist come on and explain that? And they were like, yeah, we think we got one of those. Hang on. And so they sent me <laughs> down to the TV station and it was fantastic. I had a lot of fun. The host had a lot of fun. It was a great segment. And because it went so well, anytime there's a big physics or astronomy discovery and they need a physicist in Portland to go on TV, go on the radio, etc., and talk about it, I'm the one that they give a call to. And that's just serendipity that they gave me a call one random <laughs> time and it turned out to be a really good fit. And you also, in the clip I saw, were wearing an amazing space print kilt. Oh, yeah. So I actually <laughs> have a space kilt. I also, and this is new, I had the same artist make me a Star Trek kilt. So oh, nice. if you happen to be at Star Trek Las Vegas this August, you will get to see my Star Trek kilt, which uh, <laughs> has all sorts of magnificent Star Trek themed art on it. But my favorite is on the back. There is a pocket that hangs out that has a picture hand drawn of Leonard Nimoy's Spock on it. And oh, nice. that is my Spocket. <laughs> I won't be there, but I sh I'm sure that I'm going to know a number of people that are going to be there. I'm going to point them in your direction. Well, if any of your listeners, if any of your listeners are going to be there, you know, when you see the spocket, you know exactly. You don't need. You don't need to. You'd be like, oh, I heard about this. Yes, it's me, Ethan Siegel, wearing my space kilt with a spocket on it. Okay, I'm going to throw out a name. And see what sort of a reaction you have. Uh-oh. All right, do it. Carl Sagan. Uh, brilliant. Just brilliant, kind, generous, gentle. He's such a role model for me in that he believed, he truly believed to his very core that science and the wonders of the universe was a joy for everyone to share in, regardless of your political beliefs, religious beliefs, regardless of anything else about you. Just by virtue of having the same cosmic story that brought us here, um, you have every bit as much right to learn about the universe, to share in its knowledge, its wonder, and all the joys that learning about it can bring as anyone else in existence. And I think that's a wonderful message to send to the world. I think it will never grow old. And I think that as we learn more and more about existence, life, the universe, and all that's out there, um, it just becomes more and more important to share that story with everyone. Yeah, and he was so good at spreading the message, even to people that perhaps wouldn't necessarily have had the interest beforehand. And uh, he was a huge part of my uh, growing love of science. Uh, when Cosmos came on, I was just entranced. I mean, I was already a science geek, but his uh, skepticism without um, being cynical, you know, that love for knowledge and science while still trying to, you know, get at the truth of things and not get caught up in believing in something just because you want to, you know, the extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof kind of outlook. Uh, yeah, he was just an inspiring guy. I agree completely. I think, um, I think his way of you know, I think the biggest lesson I learned watching Cosmos is is something that I try and incorporate in in my teaching and in in every bit of outreach I do is Carl had a wonderful way of saying, hey, when we start here, we all start like this is the common denominator. Everyone is comfortable 
starting here. Let's let's talk about this. And then let's just take one small step towards the next level. If you're comfortable yeah. here, then we can all take this step together and you'll be comfortable here. And then we can take another step and do the same thing. And through a series of small steps like that, all of a sudden, after a few minutes, you're going to wind up in this place, this intellectual place where if I had started off there, you wouldn't have been comfortable. You might have felt like this is crazy. This is over my head. And yet, because of the way we built to that end goal, um, you can get there and experience that awe and awareness and appreciation for what science brings humanity in a way yeah. in a way that is just very fulfilling and and that's that i think should be something that most educators aspire to exactly before we dive into technology uh, let's talk a little bit about some of your other writings uh, you've written science columns or articles for various outlets tell me a little bit about that work you know it was actually while i was a postdoc a postdoctoral research associate uh in tucson arizona that i had uh I had this sort of itch of like, hey, like this research is great, but it's not all I want to be doing. I really want to be sharing what I know, what we've learned, what what is known with as wide an audience as possible. And so I started writing about science. I, I started my own uh, blog called Starts With a Bang, and I started this 10 years ago now because um, that's how time flies. Um, wow. <laughs> uh, but I started doing that. About a year later, I got an offer to join Science Blogs, which was the premier science blogging network at the time. And since then, I've moved to First Medium and then Forbes, which is my current home. And yeah. I write my column starts with a bang over there probably about six times a week. I have six new articles a week that come out there. Uh, you can find me at Forbes.com slash site slash starts with a bang. And uh, I I think since I've started doing this, I've probably written over 3,000 articles. And um, it, holy man, it sounds like a lot. But when you are <laughs> excited about all mm -hmm. that's going on, you and you have just an a wealth of knowledge, you never run out of stories to tell it. It never gets old. People ask me all the time how you keep coming up with ideas. And I, I tell them I, I always have to pare down. I always have to say, well, mm -hmm. here are like six ideas for the next two days and I can only pick two. So <laughs> that's what I'll do. Um, and then on top of that, I've written a couple of books. Technology is one of them. I have another one that's uh, just focused on science. It's called Beyond the Galaxy, uh, How Humanity Looked Beyond Our Milky Way and Discovered the Entire Universe. And that is a book that I wrote because when I was teaching Intro to Astronomy, uh, there was no book out there that told the story of what we know about the universe, how we know it, with no equations, with lots of pictures in plain English. And that went all the way up through modern topics. Like I start with, hey, if all you had was the sky and your naked eye, what can you learn? And we build all the way up to not only relativity and the expanding universe and the Big Bang, but also real cutting edge topics like cosmological inflation and the origin of matter and not antimatter in the universe and dark matter and dark energy. And I was so happy to get to tell that story that I'm still extremely proud of that book. I'm also very happy to say nothing in that book is wrong or out of date. There are just <laughs> There are additional things that have happened since I wrote it, like yeah. like we found gravitational waves. Um, mm -hmm. But there's no, but there's nothing in that book that's been overturned. We we did a good job with that, and of course there were more coming too. You know, you can't start doing something and be happy with the people you're reaching and not want to do more of it. That's I say were the biggest things that I've I've been doing is I've been writing columns and I've been writing books. And yes, I also have a podcast. Yes, there are other things that I do as well, but those are probably the two biggest. Okay, why don't we move on to technology? So this is a really fun book uh, about Star Trek technology and comparing it to real world technology. When you started doing the research on the book, was there a particular Star Trek technology 
that surprised you in that maybe we were closer to it than you would have thought beforehand? Or was there something that we're further away from than you might have thought before you started working on the book? You know, I, I would say because of my background in astrophysics that the physics-based technologies, the things like warp drive and transporters and phasers and uh, tractor beams, those didn't surprise me. I was pretty aware of where we were yeah. with respect to those. Um, I was a little pleased to discover that we were a little further along on holograms and in particular on matter holograms than we, mm -hmm. than I thought we were. One of the coolest things that I, I learned is uh, the, earlier this decade in Tokyo, um, you know, when you think about virtual reality, you think like, oh, you put those headsets on and maybe you also put headphones on and it'll project images and you'll hear sounds. And that's, that's like close to like a holodeck type experience. Well, I was shocked when I learned how big a step further they went, that what they had was a simulation, yeah, where you put the goggles on, you put the, you put the headphones on, and you heard the sound of dripping water, and you saw drops of water falling in front of you. But this was an interactive simulation where you would hold your hand out in front of you and in three dimensions, because you would not just move side to side, but also in and out and up and down, you would try and catch the water. And if the water, this is just like an electronic image, right? If the water yeah. hit your hand, you would see it splash and your mm -hmm. hand would feel momentarily like it was hit by this wet drop of water. And the way they did that was with infrasound sensors that were above you and they would shoot down these puffs of air at just the right frequency and with just the right amplitude that they would mimic the sensation of a drop of water falling and hitting your hand and of course you'd pull your hand away and it would be dry but it was i can only imagine how disconcerting that would be to be in yeah. this simulation and actually feel this computerized water hitting your hand. Um, but it was, it reminded me of back when, uh, I think the, it was the encounter at Farpoint episode where Wesley Crusher fell into a pond of water in the holodeck and he comes out dripping wet. And I was like, uh, when I saw that, I was like, ah, you can't do that with hollow water. <laughs> holodeck water wouldn't get you really wet, but now I'm convinced you can feel it. So, that was one that that surprised me. But over on the medical and biological side, I was I was really floored by how far we had come. I I knew about some of the computational advances that we had made, um, but I I never imagined how far we would be on the path towards Geordi's visor, for example. You know, the way Star Trek envisioned it is you'd give yourself these implants in your temples and you would hook up this external camera that would go through your temples and it would send information through your optic nerve to your brain. Well, they've done one even better than that. If you don't have eyes at all, if you don't have optic nerves at all, they can still help you see. And the way they do that is through a chip implant in the visual cortex of your brain. They can hook up an external camera anywhere. I mean, it could be on your body or on your head so that you can look around and see what you're looking at, but it could literally be anywhere and then send signals to that implant wirelessly. You could see across the electromagnetic spectrum. You could see more than the human eye could see. And you can do this just at will. And when I heard of this, I thought this was incredible. And I reached out to the Monash Vision Group at Australia who was doing this research. And they were happy to share a whole bunch of their research with me. But the most shocking thing that I came away with was... I think maybe the most Star Trek question of all, which is asking about the ethics of it. Of course, if someone's blind, you want to restore their sight, but you'll also want to make very sure that you can protect them from nefarious actors like computer hackers. We have such a problem with cybersecurity these days with yeah. hacks and leaks and password protection and, and things like that. Can you even imagine what would happen if someone hacked into a chip that was implanted into your head? 
and they just started feeding you false information, what would you do when you're driving on the road and they tell you, oh, turn to the left and there's a cliff to the left? Like that's the end of you. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is an issue where I think, you know, we have to consider these ethical issues that, you know, maybe even Star Trek never envisioned, although with Geordie's visor, they totally did. They totally yeah. had a movie where his visor gets <laughs> hacked into and the ship goes down and crashes on a planet because somebody didn't change the shield codes, you know. Jordy <laughs> didn't uh, update his password to his uh, visor enough. <laughs> I blame the firmware personally. <laughs> But there were so many wonderful technologies that I was so excited about. Another one that, you know, is sort of a throwaway technology to a lot of people. But to me, it's something that I very much want uh, was Synthahol. And I remember <laughs> when they this was a big plot point in the episode Relics of the Next Generation, where they brought Scotty from a transporter's pattern buffer into the 24th century onto the Enterprise D. And he is just losing it, finding himself in a world with synthetic scotch and synthetic commanders, and he can't handle it. Uh, so, you know, Picard <laughs> takes him into the office and he's like, okay, here's the real stuff, and like gives him a real alcohol-based drink. <laughs> But for me, the idea of Synthahol is just remarkable that you could experience all of the positive effects of alcohol, the increased self-confidence, the euphoria, the loss of inhibition, where it's just easier to have a good time without any of the negative side effects, with, with no addiction, no dead brain cells, no dehydration, no loss of equilibrium, no nausea. And none of that terrible hangover feeling either. I, you know, as I get older, yeah. I'm really looking and, forward to that one. And you can just snap back to a hundred percent in a moment's notice. I mean, yeah. and when Roddenberry envisioned it, his idea was that it would be adrenaline. Adrenaline would be the chemical that snaps you back. Uh, and of course, in real life, it's not quite that simple because that's not how pharmacology works. It just doesn't correspond to your dream chemical doing whatever <laughs> you want. You have to actually find the chemicals that do. But what's amazing is there is real progress being made on this front. You know, when you think of all the people who die of alcoholism or cirrhosis, when you think of all the drunk driving accidents that happen, this could all be eliminated if we had a safe alcohol substitute that everyone was on board with. And synthahol is that promise. Thanks to advances in pharmacology and pharmacokinetics, they can actually say like, hey, we have this whole class of molecules that will bind to the same receptors that your alcohol metabolites bind to in your own body. And not only that, but there are different subunits to these receptors. And so you can make chemicals and they've succeeded in this. They're in the Valium clonopin family that they can bind to some of the receptors, but not to others. And moreover, there's an antidote chemical that you can just take in pill form. It's not immediate, but in about a half mm -hmm. hour, it will kick all of those chemicals out of your receptors and leave you like stone sober which is wonderful. So that's something, you know, look, the things that are on the market now, they have undesirable effects. Um, yeah. Some of them are addictive. Some of them do things like cause seizures. Um, so, like there are, there are negative effects to these. So it's not ready for prime time yet, but we're well on our way. And I would be very surprised if in the next decade or two, uh, we didn't see real synthahol, real alcohol alternatives hitting the market and cutting down on some of our most abused recreational substances. Paramount and CBS should be uh, trademarking that term and getting ready to uh, cash in on uh, <laughs> selling synthahol to Star Trek fans. I would be surprised <laughs> if it weren't already a registered trademark of someone. <laughs> and actually, that brings up something interesting that we can talk about on a, for a couple of the other uh, technologies in the book. Yeah. Is the things that Star Trek essentially predicted, things that we already have now that are in, in, in some ways even better than what we had on the show. Yeah, I'm going to reach into uh, my pocket over here and pull out my <laughs> smartphone which the pad 
from Star Trek The Next Generation or the electronic clipboard could never have envisioned. I'm going to, you know, talk to you on Skype on my computer, which is hooked up to the Internet. When The Next Generation came out, the idea of a ship's computer that you could talk to that would turn your voice commands into computer code and it would do its computations and it would spit the answer back at you because it had this whole vast repository of knowledge on the computer. Useless. What what a fool's errand to put all the knowledge in one place. You have the internet for that. You can have a decentralized location where you could just access it from anywhere. There's no need to bring it all with you. You don't need Wikipedia on your hard drive. You have it on the internet. That's fine. Um, you have voice recognition software. We have universal translation software that is so good that the Google Pixel 2, when it debuted, that was how they highlighted it, is they had someone speak Swedish into their Pixel, and they had someone listening and hearing with only a one or two second delay the Swedish words spoken in their earpiece in English. And then they spoke back into their phone in English, and it shows up in the earpiece of the other person in Swedish. We have that. We have that right now. It didn't yeah. take, you know, if you remember at the prequel series Enterprise, which was made in the 2000s, or coming after that, you had uh, the original series. Um, what was Hoshisato's job? What was Lieutenant Uhura's job? They were communications officers, and that meant they were experts in languages. That meant that they spoke all these different languages and they knew these nuances of all these other languages, and that was hundreds of years in the future. <laughs> and I'm telling you that now we have universal translation software that can get with 90 some odd percent accuracy, not only the word for word translations, but the idiomatic translations of phrases. And even in the 24th century, you know, you run across an alien species and they're saying Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. And you're like, <laughs> what does that mean? Well, they, we can tell you what that means. We're not that far off from that. So things are advancing tremendously fast. And that's not even to mention things we just throw away, take for granted, like flip communicators and automatic sliding yep. doors um, or transparent aluminum, for that matter. Um, if you've ever heard of a heat-seeking missile, that's how it seeks the heat, is the aluminum is transparent to infrared radiation, and that's the signal that it follows. And we're also getting closer to uh, various types of replicator technology you know they 3d printers and that sort of thing they just 3d printed the very first pizza on the international space station <laughs> so if you really want your food replicators you know we're not at the point where you can order already brewed earl gray tea <laughs> but if you can put in the food stock, the food stuffs as feed stock, you know, like you would put yeah. in plastic or wood or titanium to print your plastic or wood or titanium objects. If you put in, you know, chocolate, you can 3D print yourself a birthday cake. If you put it like you can put in, if you give it the right raw materials, you can 3D print almost anything. One of the technologies that I realized is probably on its way that Star Trek didn't really envision as a technology, but I think is very close and is likely to be here any day, is going to be getting humans into the equivalent of the Borg Collective. Mm -hmm. And when I say this, I'm specifically thinking of things like, okay, we have Twitter, we have the internet, we have Instagram, and we also have, um, you know, cortical implants and yep. cybernetic implants it's really only going to be a matter of time before you can put a chip in your own brain that you can say you know what let me broadcast my thoughts let me broadcast what i'm seeing what i'm doing what i'm thinking to anyone who wants to listen and also let me tap into this network where people are broadcasting their thoughts and what they see yep. And I can listen in on that, you know, and I imagine people will opt in, people will opt out, people will listen sometimes and not at other times, people will broadcast sometimes and not at other times. 
But I imagine that this network is going to exist and it's going to be like a collective of human consciousness where you can choose yep. to listen in to whatever you want or whoever you want, um, whenever you choose and you can choose to broadcast. And that's going to supersede what we know of as many parts of the Internet. Um, yeah. And in a very real sense, that is a lot like plugging into the Borg Collective. And raises all sorts of ethical issues, like you mentioned earlier with uh, hacking Jordy's visor. I mean, if you think cyberbullying is bad now, just <laughs> <Yeah>. wait. <laughs> just wait until, you know, your thought crime gets you into trouble. <laughs> yep. You know, if you wanted to ask me about the images in the book, I really have to give it up to my publisher, Quarto, because they were instrumental in negotiating the license rights with CBS Studios and Paramount Pictures, you'll notice that there are images, beautiful full-color images of crew members and starships and all sorts of different technologies from all five of the series, you know, excepting Discovery because the book came out yeah. while Discovery was in post-production. Um, from all five of the series that were available, um, in, and and all of the movies from the original cast movies to the next generation movies to the J.J. Abrams reboot movies, um, they were instrumental in securing those rights. And, and they've created, uh, you know, together we've created a book that is not only full of incredibly interesting science and science fiction mixed together, but is is a beautiful book to look at. It does look great. Let's see. I was going to ask you about the... Um human life extension that gets mentioned under the medical and biological. Oh section. yeah. I mean, that's a particularly exciting one uh, to anyone named Ray Kurzweil. Um, <laughs> you know, this is, this is something where I think we've all dreamed of not only living longer, but living better for longer. Mm -hmm. um, we, Unfortunately, and I think I've noticed this ever since my early 30s, and this year this year is 40 for me, and when I talk to my relatives, they assure me it gets worse. Um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, I was, I was used to when I was a teenager, when I was in my 20s, like, yep, you would do stuff, and you'd get injured, and you'd get better. And in my thirties, <laughs> that really changed where I would do stuff and I would get injured and your body just does this now. And this injury is going to be something that is with you for the rest of your life. And I've got it in my thumb and my shoulder and my back and my neck and my, and it goes on. Um, and it gets worse as you get older and it gets worse as you get tired because your body breaks down. Your body loses the ability to regenerate itself, to restore itself, to to build muscle, to get into shape for various things. And this is this is a fact of life that I, I have to give Captain Picard credit for. He did a tremendous job of coming to terms with this. Uh and he was extremely explicit about it in his conversations with Q. In the movie Generations, where he had to give yet another lecture to Commander Riker. And, you know, he, he, he went on about this numerous times. Human life extension, though, if we could do this, if we could have a high quality of life for longer, this would be fascinating. That was a technology that when I first heard about it, I thought that's going to go into the pipe dream category. That's going to go into the no way category. But it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't is because there are organisms on Earth that don't age. The naked mole rat is an example. The uh, crab is an example. Um, if you've ever heard of the Spanish expression translated into English, it means I'm I'm thinking about the immortal life of the crab. It means I'm I'm daydreaming. But also it's true. Uh, if you leave a crab in the ocean for long enough, it will just get bigger and bigger and bigger and it will never die. It will it will live forever. It regenerates its own DNA. And the mechanism by which organisms that don't age don't age is through something called the CRISPR-Cas9 system. And I go into detail in this in the book. Um, since I've written the book, we've learned that there 
um, that that exact specific mechanism, those two chemicals in particular, uh, may not work for long-term changes to human DNA, but there's no reason that an analogous system that is compatible with humans wouldn't work. It basically says, hey, here's your DNA when you're born. Things get switched on, things get switched off, but also your DNA gets corrupted over time. Well, imagine if you could say, hey, your corrupted DNA, let's just... Uh, Let's just put in these switches here that restore it. And periodically you just, you know, instead of going for your Botox injections or your facelift or whatever it is you go into to give the illusion that you're not aging, you could just say, hey, let me get a little uh, DNA restoration up in here. And they restore your DNA and you're like, oh, that was nice. That took like 15 years off. That was great. That was great. Let me hang in there. So I think that is really promising. And we may we all look as good uh, when we are in our 60s as Ricardo Montalban did in Rafikon. Let's talk about what is, for me, probably the coolest idea of, of Star Trek that we may never actually crack warp drive you know i i've said this before and I'll, I'll say it explicitly for you warp drive is what puts the trek in star trek if you yep. don't have warp drive you're not going to be trekking to the stars um that's that's what it takes if you had asked me about warp drive 30 years ago i would have told you yeah that's the fiction part um yeah because we didn't even have a theoretical possibility. You know, you can you can have the possibility of a wormhole. It just takes like, oh, like you just need like a galaxy's worth of energy mm -hmm. in two separate locations to build a traversable wormhole. Um, but it turns out for warp drive, not only don't you need that much energy, you also don't need any real exotic physics beyond what general relativity already allows. You don't need to change the law of gravity. You do need something a little bit extra than what relativity gives you, though, and I'll get to that in a sec. Um, if you say, hey, I want to warp drive myself from one place to another. This is important because otherwise, let's say there's a star you're interested in visiting and it's 40 light years away. Special relativity, if you go real close to the speed of light, you can make that journey for you in less than 40 years. You can make it in, let's say, six months. So yeah. um, you go there, six months, you do your mission, no time turn around, come back six months, and you'll say, aha, I went 40 light years and then 40 light years back, and it only took me one year, and it did for you. But back on Earth, owing to relativity, they aged 40 and a half years on your journey there, and they aged 40 and a half years on your journey back. Now, I don't care how good human life extension gets, if you're gone for a year and you miss 81 years back on Earth, <laughs> you're going to miss you're going to have missed out on some things. That is a little unfortunate. So what do we do instead? Well, in the mid 1990s, a theoretical physicist named Miguel Alcubier engineered a solution to a warp drive. And what he basically said was, hey, if you do this amazing thing of building a special type of space-time, now known as the Alcubierre space-time, um, what you can do is you can create like a static bubble where everything within the bubble is safe, space is uncurved. But in front of you, the space where you're moving towards is compressed. So instead of 40 light years, maybe it is only half a light year in front of you. And the way you make up for that is the space behind you gets rarefacted, the opposite of compressed. It gets stretched. So you move through the compressed space and behind you, it stretches out again. This is magnificent. This is a great way to say, hey, I'm not cheating in any way. I'm not going yeah. faster than light. I'm just changing 
which parts of space are in front of me and behind me. You make the journey through the compressed space and you make up for it behind you. This way, if it takes you six months to get there and six months to get back, the people back on Earth have also only aged a year. That's how you can keep the timeline consistent. Now, yes, you do need an ingredient that maybe we don't have so much of, uh, and that ingredient is either negative mass or negative energy. And as far as we know, our universe only has the positive kind. But that doesn't mean it's not possible. For example, one of the things we've never measured is antimatter. What direction do you fall in a gravitational field? We've created atoms and we know they fall down in a gravitational field. Well, we've created neutral antimatter, but we haven't isolated it and controlled it well enough to measure which direction it falls in. Mm. If it falls up, that's your negative gravitational mass. And if you build that properly, then all sorts of technologies, including some of the dubious ones that I highlight in the book, things like artificial gravity, things like warp drive, they become possible. The one that I'm most pessimistic about is probably subspace communication. And the reason I'm pessimistic about that is because we don't have subspace, as far as we know, just regular kind. So it's probably hard to communicate through subspace, but that does not mean that faster than light communication is impossible. Because if warp drive is possible, then communicating at that same speed, communicating at warp speed should also be possible. I, I try to stress in the book, and I want to stress this for real life too, that just because Star Trek envisioned that something's going to happen in a certain way doesn't mean we need to be um, slavish to their explanation. The yeah. Star Trek writers may have consulted with scientists, and some of them may have even been scientists, but they but but it's science fiction it's not actual science if it were then we wouldn't need scientists we would just need star trek writers and that would be how we would build our future <laughs> one other thing that we're getting very close to but as you just mentioned in a completely different way the emergency medical hologram you know we're we're a long way from be, having uh, a hologram that could behave the way it's uh, shown on star trek but uh, computerized robotic medicine is really moving forward. You know, the field of telemedicine has advanced incredibly where precision cuts and procedures um, can be done through the addition of robotics. It's far superior than what even the steadiest handed surgeon can perform yeah. on their own. It's really it's really remarkable. And, and part of the way we've, we've got these advances is this combination of robotics, computers, and, and human adaptation to it. So surgeons get trained now on, for example, the da Vinci machine, which can do things to such an incredible precision. You know, we talked about 3D printers and how precise those can get just by taking more time. Well, through all sorts of robotics, you can get down to really, really small scales. You can get down to like micron scale medicine where your cuts are so precise that they're basically restricted by the size of the blade. That's the width of the cutting surface is, is yeah. like the limit of your precision. That's really incredible. That's really incredible. And this has a slew of applications. I'm looking forward to the day far in the future, maybe not so far in the future, where you don't even need to be in the same country as the doctor performing the surgery, where maybe yeah. you don't even need a doctor that you could just say, oh, look, my appendix is inflamed, I better go in, and you know, RoboDoc goes in and cuts you open and saves you and pulls your appendix out and everything's great. Yep. These days are not far off and, you know, of the 28 different technologies profiled in Treknology, 
the medical and biological ones, when they get here, those are really going to have some of the biggest impacts on our quality of life of of any of them. The computational ones are probably the ones that are closest to already being here, but still the ones I'll dream of the most are going to be those starship technologies. That was actually going to be my next question, you know, what do you want most personally of the technology that you covered in the book? Well, I mean, obviously I think, uh, you know, warp drive is a big one. I think another yeah. huge one for me is I would love to have a transporter. Mm -hmm. I would love to be able to go wherever I want, whenever I wanted, to visit whoever I wanted, to be able to get myself out of a situation I didn't want to be in anymore. Beaming in and beaming out, that's some beautiful stuff. But I think for societal good, one of the best technologies that I can that I can think of uh, would be a phaser, because imagine how that would revolutionize law enforcement if you could reliably disable a target yeah. with no chance of an accidental death. It's very important for police officers, for any law enforcement officers, to be able to do their job. And when you're constantly under threat that, like, this could, this could be the end of me, this could be my last moment on Earth facing these challenges, that's a very difficult situation to act rationally in all the time. Yeah. Um, and often it's civilians who pay the price for that. Well... Imagine a world where that wasn't an issue, where law enforcement had a weapon that could disable any target from possibly even a couple of kilometers away, where you could just go in, precision disable someone, go and get them, and you don't have to worry about them fighting back. You don't have to worry about them causing you any bodily harm. You've just diffused a situation. You've de-escalated a situation using non-lethal yeah. force. That's a technology that's close that I think would be revolutionary for society. And I can't wait for that one to come to fruition. Well, before we wrap things up here, were there any other technologies that you covered in the book or maybe even one that you weren't able to get into the book that you'd like to uh, comment on? You know, the only one that I thought of that I didn't put in the book um, was weather control. When you were on Earth, you had pretty much whatever weather you wanted to have. And mm -hmm. that was great. I think as we face up to the realities of climate change, we're going to have to really look at, you know, how far can we get to solving these problems that we've, you know, created for ourselves yeah. in some sense um, before we do have to resort to something like geoengineering, before we mm -hmm. do have to resort to, hey, what can we what can we do here? What can we do to make this stuff better? And I think if we do resort to geoengineering, that something like weather control, where we study meteorology well enough to know, hey, here are the weather patterns that are coming. Here are the things that form these types of storms. Here are the things that cause rainfall or drought or these types of phenomena. Um, I think as we learn about them and understand how they come about, the idea that we can manipulate that to give countries the weather they need for agricultural purposes, for safety purposes, for avoiding natural disasters. Um, that's, that's a really tremendous one. Uh, and that's probably the biggest one that I thought about including but didn't. Um, but that's one that I'd, I'd be very curious to see coming forward. And of course, you know, it looks like it looks like I just may have to someday uh, do an update to this book because we have a whole new Star Trek series that is imagining <laughs> a whole slew of different technologies. Some of them yep. appear more plausible than others, but I think if you take the approach of these are interesting ideas, if I want this to be true, what would I need to happen? Uh, there's a very rich 
set of avenues to explore there. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Did you want to remind the listeners the various places that they can find you online? Yeah, absolutely, Scott. Thanks for having me. And I'm uh, I'm sorry that I only got the original series tonight and not the next generation. I hope, <laughs> uh, hope your daughter's able to join you next time real soon. Uh, send my live long and prosper regards to her. Um, but... Uh, yeah, uh, if you're looking for me, Ethan Siegel, you can find me online. I'm, uh, I blog at Starts With a Bang on Forbes. I've got a couple of books out, and you can always find me on Twitter, on Facebook, or Google+. My name's Ethan Siegel, and my Twitter handle is Starts With a Bang. Okay, now it's time for Ella's cameo. This was her reaction to the surprise at the end of Star Trek Discovery's first season finale, including spoilers. You can find the video for this on our Facebook and Instagram pages. Now, here's Ella. Literally don't. This is Captain Saru of the Federation Starship Discovery. Please identify yourself. It's the USS Enterprise. I'm about to pass out! <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I need grandma's heart medication. (laughs) (laughs) That's all the time we have for this episode. In upcoming episodes, we'll be continuing our review of the Alien series with Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection. Plus, we'll have other shows on whatever other geeky ideas we can come up with. Remember that Generations Geek is part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from a rundown space prison. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny.